0: Just a reminder, those of you who might not have been here last week, we're going we're breaking in the Gospel of John at the end of chapter 11. We're picking up again in September in chapter 12. This morning we will be in 1 Thessalonians, but you don't need to turn there just yet because we're going to do a little background before we get there. But what does a genuine word of encouragement mean to you? Not, not flattery, sincere, heartfelt, truth-based encouragement for something that someone has seen in your life, something that you've said or done that you're being thanked for in some way, some way that you've made a difference and somebody is kindly acknowledging that in some way and seeking to encourage you. It's clear from Scripture that encouragement is part and parcel of ministry as believers. Hebrews 10.25, where it urges believers to fellowship together, to meet together regularly for corporate worship, says we should encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. The, the goal there of coming together, part of it is encouraging one another. The Greek word that is used there in Hebrews and used throughout the New Testament for encourage is parakaleo, para meaning alongside, kaleo meaning to call. As someone comes alongside, as they are called alongside, they bring encouragement. They, they walk with us. They strengthen us. They're side by side with us. They're a source of encouragement. Paul talks about in Colossians 4.8, sending one of his ministry partners to Colossae, and he says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. I'm sending him to you to minister encouragement to you, to come alongside you, to walk with you, and to strengthen you. Paul does that throughout his ministry, his, his focus is on local churches, he is Uh, In a sense, planting local churches. Paul goes into cities. He and his ministry partners, he proclaims the gospel to unbelievers. When they come to faith in Christ, he comes alongside them and teaches them and grounds them in the faith and ultimately seeks to help build them up into a, a local church, a gathering of believers, and then seeks to establish them as followers of Jesus Christ. A lot of areas Paul didn't get to stay long. He did that work, did that church planting, helped establish the church, but then wasn't able to stay and and moved on to another city. And so his letters are this glorious body of work that demonstrates to us exhorting and encouraging young churches in their walk with Christ, helping them to become established. 1 Thessalonians is one of those letters. It was born out of a desire to encourage a young church, to come alongside of them. In two ways, largely. First, by praising the grace of God that enabled that church to stand firm. He is he's writing to them to celebrate God's grace in the fact that they as a church are standing in truth. They are standing in union with Christ. They are established on God's word. And also, he secondly then writes to encourage the Thessalonians to press on. To not just stay in one place, to not become fixed in one place, to not be content, to not think that they had already arrived, to not, in the midst of persecution, to feel sort of discouraged and and, and stuck and just sit there and wait for whatever happens next. But he wants them to to press on, and so he is urging them in 1 Thessalonians, "Don't, don't be content here. God is gracious, and he has caused you to stand firm God is also giving you the grace to continue to press on in ministry. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 16, the book of Acts. Just want to look at the founding of the church at Thessalonica, and we find the record of it here in the book of Acts as it's recording Paul's journeys. Acts chapter 16 helps us see the birth of the Thessalonian church. Got a map that we can take a look at, and I learned this morning that red laser pointers do not show up on these screens, so you'll have to just sort of follow along here. Lower southeast corner, we have Jerusalem down in Judea, and then travel up through Syria, and you come to the sort of greenish-bluish area of Galatia, and you see some three lines sort of paralleling through Galatia, and that's travels through Lystra and Derby. Thessalonica is all the way in the top left corner, in the northwest, in kind of that yellow corner, which is the region of Macedonia, and Thessalonica is right on the Aegean Sea up in that corner. Important place, First, because it's a, a port city, and so trade is critical. It's, Macedonia is a large re- region that spreads throughout there. Um, Modern-day Greece, Macedonia, parts of Albania. That was largely the access to trade. So not only did you have seafare that came in through Thessalonica, but you also had a major highway that passed through there. The Romans, famous for building roads, had a 700-mile-long highway, and Thessalonica was on that route. So it is an important city. It was in a sense, the capital of the province of Macedonia, the lead city there, which was an important place in the Roman Empire. Place of trade, place that military passed through on the road, place of great business. And so Acts 16 starts by taking us in Paul's travels first through Galatia, through Derby and Lystra. And as they're approaching Asia, it's clear from Acts 16:6, 6, the Holy Spirit in some way forbids. Paul and his traveling partners, Silas in particular, forbids them from speaking in Asia. Typically, Paul would go into cities and he would find the synagogue, connect there with the, the Jewish followers of God that who were monotheistic, presumably, in their approach, who were expecting a Messiah, and he would preach there. And so, as Acts 16.6 says, the Holy Spirit forbade him for some reason from preaching in Asia. It doesn't give us details. Presumably, this is part of God's timing, and it is not God's timing, and perhaps the hostility would be great were he to preach there, and so he does not. And so he continues to travel on west, and at the very far tip of Asia, the northwest tip, is the town of Troas, which is right there on the the coast of the Aegean Sea on the east side. So look at Acts 16.8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God gave Paul a vision of a man in that region of Macedonia, that yellow region up in the the, the top left corner there, pleading for help. Presumably, as as Luke interprets it for us here, presumably for the preaching of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that Macedonian call that leads to the birth of the Thessalonian church. Paul receives the vision. He travels by sea from Troas up to the very top left corner there, which is Philippi. You remember the story from Acts chapter 16, where he's preaching in Philippi. Opposition is stirred up against him. Paul and Silas are thrown into jail, and it is by virtue of an earthquake that God delivers them from out of that prison, and then the story that follows of Paul and the Philippian jailer. We're seeing, as Paul heads further west, he's moving more and more into Gentile areas, less of a Jewish population, but nonetheless still Jewish populations enough in some of these cities that there are synagogues, but more into just godless idolatry and the immorality that that a lot of that idolatry was tied to. A lot of the Gentile religions were simply idol worship, and they included prostitution as part of the worship and just dragged the culture through immorality, the closer that they are heading toward Rome at this point. And so, travels to Philippi, has to leave Philippi, and travels down through a couple of more cities. Acts 16 tells us that apparently didn't have synagogues. He doesn't stop there to preach. When we get to chapter 17... It says he got to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue there. So pick up with me in Acts 17, verse 2. Acts 17, 2, and Paul went in. This is the the Thessalonica synagogue. Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Stop here. There is the, the picture of the birth of the church at Thessalonica. Paul starts by going to the synagogue to the place where presumably there is an expectation of the Messiah or the Christ, as it says there. And Paul begins to preach to them, probably from passages like we might see in Isaiah 53, where he describes to this Jewish audience, the Messiah is to come and to suffer and to die. He is to to bleed. He is to give his life as a ransom, as a servant, as a sacrificial lamb, if you will, for the sins of his people. And so he's preaching that. And the description there is that some of the Jews there believe, and a great number of Gentiles do. It says that he preached there on three Sabbaths. It is likely that Paul was in Thessalonica longer than that. Three Sabbaths would be a period of two to maybe three weeks, two, two days, two Sabbaths, one in the middle, so maybe two weeks, but probably there longer than that. Philippians 4.16 suggests that he was there longer because it says while he was in Thessalonica, The believers up in Philippi on more than one occasion sent support down to provide for Paul and Silas. Presumably Luke is there and others who traveled with them. And so the fact that that 100 mile trip was back and forth at least a couple of times tells us this was probably more than just a two or three week stay in Thessalonica. Nonetheless, not a long stay. Um, First Thessalonians 2.9, Paul also speaks about working day and night while in Thessalonica because he didn't want to be a burden to the people. He he wanted to provide support, and so he worked long hours while he was there. Um, So he's there A short time, probably longer than a couple of weeks, we don't know for sure, but not a long time and certainly not long enough to do all of the ministry that he wanted to do because clearly it is cut short. The reason the preaching stops at the synagogue is because the Jews begin to oppose him, they begin to stir up the crowds, and they go to the home that has been hosting Paul and Silas while they are in town, and so this is what ends now Paul's stay there. Pick up in verse 6, they've, they've gathered and come to Jason's house, demanding Paul and Silas. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So ultimately, we see that the preaching of the gospel is ended in Thessalonica by virtue of a mob. This should sound similar to some of what we've seen in the Gospel of John, that the very opposition to Jesus on the basis of, hey, Roman Empire, you want to do away with this guy because all he's seeking to do is cause revolt against you and he's going to try to be a king and so you should get rid of him. Now they're using with Paul and Silas. This guy has come and he is preaching about this presumed king, Jesus, and if you let him go, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have insurrection. And so they are using that now to stir up the crowd. Interesting thing, though, in that statement, when they they sort of gather in the city square and make their case, They say in verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have also come here. Isn't that a remarkable statement about the growth and birth of the church of Jesus Christ? What started in Jerusalem with the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has now spread throughout this region, so much so that now on the other side of the Aegean Sea, at the other end of the Mediterranean, part of what these these opponents are saying is, listen, listen, These guys are turning the world upside down with this message. We need to stop it here. Speaks to the power of God and the power of the gospel in spreading the church as it begins to grow. Turn now to 1 Thessalonians, book of 1 Thessalonians. Knowing this, we know now that Paul was essentially ripped away from Thessalonica before he had time to to do what he intended to do, at least what he planned to do, which was more time teaching, more time helping to establish these relatively new converts, more time of helping them start to understand sound doctrine and what the church would look like. And so that that explains the background to this letter. It is written out of a, a deep sense of concern for the Thessalonians, but also a sense of joy. Paul, and his travels, went on to Athens, continued to be concerned for the church at Thessalonica. And so at some point, Paul and Silas send Timothy back up to Thessalonica to go and to see how the church is doing, not at all sure what they're going to find. Remember, this is a church that is born from persecution. I mean, no sooner does the gospel get preached than there is a mob at this brother's house, and they are ready to start dragging these people out for for giving any kind of room to this gospel message. And so Paul is undoubtedly concerned, and he describes some of that. It, It is so hard for us, I think, to relate to what it must have been like to be hundreds of miles away, to want to know what's going on there and have no clue... No way of being in touch with them except to send Timothy, let him travel for days to get there by foot, let him go and see the people and and spend time encouraging them and then wait for him to come back and finally see his face and get this report. If you look at chapter 2, verse 17, now that we know that background, 2.17 says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Verse 5 of chapter 3. that's a beautiful part of Scripture. You can almost feel Paul's relief when Timothy finally shows back up and has this news that Paul not only has the church survived in the midst of persecution, but they are gloriously growing by God's grace. Their faith and their love are to be spoken of and testified about. There are, there are marvelous things happening in Thessalonica. And you can just hear that sense in Paul's writing that he is just delighted at what God has done. Knowing that beforehand, he, as he says, he had feared that the tempter would come, that Satan would come and have his way, and that he would simply have destroyed that church. The church is not only surviving this outburst of persecution, but it is growing as as a result. And so the report from Timothy back to Paul is filled with good news. God is firmly establishing this new church. And so Paul writes to them now to encourage them to come alongside them by way of this letter and to continue the, the work that had been started before of teaching them, of grounding them, of of praising God for them and speaking to them through this letter. No sooner had they become believers in Jesus Christ than they experienced hostility. That is so contrary to what most of us experience. We come to faith in Christ, and and oftentimes it's the result of someone's been praying for us and witnessing to us and longing for us, and they, they embrace us and they're delighted. Some of you may have had an experience, though even similar to the Thessalonians, where you came to faith in Christ, and the result was you were ostracized. You had family that that began to despise you because of that. Maybe you suffered in some way because of it. These were individuals who, to become a follower of Jesus Christ in this environment, had to count the cost, because they had to understand that, that claiming the name of Jesus could mean immediate persecution, immediate being cut off from friends and family, perhaps a loss of job, perhaps even torture and suffering and losing their home and everything that went with it. And so it is into that that Paul is speaking. Those two goals, really. One is to say, listen, God has enabled you to stand firm. Praise God for that. Thank God that you are here and you are standing in truth and you are united with Christ and you cannot be removed from that, praise God. He wants to encourage them in that way. But then secondly, in the midst of that, he wants them to continue growing because the the temptation in those kind of circumstances is to just sort of hunker down. Self-protection kind of kicks in. In fact, later on in Thessalonians, he'll talk a little bit about the return of Christ. It's clear that he had taught something about Jesus returning. They didn't fully grasp it at that point, but part of his concern for them is that they don't get in this mode of everything's going wrong, we're being persecuted, we believe in Jesus, he's coming back, we're just gonna sit here and wait for Jesus to come back and and, and let everything kind of go by and hope for the best. And so this letter is... Praise God that you are standing firm. Now I pray that God urges you to press on. Don't be content. Don't be weary, but continue to glorify him. One other verse, and then we'll go back to chapter 1. But chapter 4, verse 1, I think if you want to summarize the tone of this letter and Paul's writing in this letter, it's chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. If there was a verse that, that sort of summed this up, sort of Paul's tone in this letter, I would suggest it's this one. His message is one of praise and exhortation. It is such a beautiful example of what we should look like when we are seeking to disciple younger believers, or parents, what we should look like when we are seeking to exhort our children. It is on the one level, praise, this is good. This, you are in a good place. God is doing a good work in you. And then it is the exhortation, but don't stop there. Continue. Continue to press on. The New American Standard says in four one, it says, Excel still more. I love that language of excel still more. It, it is the, the Greek word parasuo, which means to have something in abundance. I am thankful for your walk with Christ, and now I am praying that it, it wouldn't be enough. You wouldn't be satisfied with where you are in your walk with Christ, but that you would grow and that walk would increase and, and, and your lives would overflow with gospel truth coming from your life and reaching others. Excel still more. So stand firm and press on in union with Christ. That's what we've set down as the theme of this study this summer through 1 Thessalonians, standing firm and pressing on in union with Christ. So verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, and we're just going through three verses this morning, so if you're stopping and thinking, wow, we're just starting now in chapter 1, and there's a picnic and food and all that to come, we're only going through the three verses here. But verse 1, Paul says, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul starts the letter, as was common in that culture in writing a letter, author, recipient. Identify the author, identify the recipients. And so he describes this letter as coming from the the missionary team that they would have known, the the individuals who came and planted that church. So he says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy— It is from those who came and proclaimed the gospel, and Timothy who came and and carried out that missionary work, excuse me. He doesn't say apostle, which is interesting. He does in several other letters where he says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is in those passages that we tend to see that Paul has had some level of questioning, that the people have had some level of questioning of Paul's integrity and Paul's position. And so often there's defense in those letters that he has been sent by God. This is, this is a love letter in, in large part. This is very similar to Philippians. This is where Paul doesn't have to defend himself. The, the only... Possible question that comes up is the Thessalonians saying, where are you, and when are you coming back? And, and that's why we read that portion where Paul says, listen, I've longed to come back to you, and I will when I can, but I sent Timothy instead. Uh, but th- there is just nothing but love and admiration for these people, and, and vice versa. And so he doesn't have to describe himself as an apostle. The letter then is written to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, written to the, the ekklesia in Thessalonica. Ekklesia, we think of the word, when we think of the word church, we tend to think pretty precisely of a religious sort of organization of some sort. When they used the word ekklesia back then, it simply meant a called out gathering of people. They were people who had come together for some specific purpose. And so to merely say the ecclesia in Thessalonica is kind of broad. It could be a a varying uh, number of organizations. It could be a political gathering, like we would have a political convention, perhaps, um, or a social meeting of of a group of like-minded people. So that's why he specifies to the ecclesia of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying this is a called-out group that uniquely belongs to God and to Jesus Christ. This is the group of those who have been called out to be joined to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. The fourth century preacher John Chrysostom said, there were many assemblies, both Jewish and Greek, but this one is given a great dignity. There is nothing equal to the assembly that is in God. There were no doubt Jewish people, who would have said, we belong to the assembly of of God the Father, of of, of God, the the one true God. And that's why Paul goes the step further to make that critical distinction, that these are not only those who are united with God the Father, but they are in union with Jesus Christ. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been joined to the one who is the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Master, who is the anticipated Son of God. They are joined to him. They are in union with him. They are part of the body of Christ. You and I have a relationship with our forefathers in Thessalonica. We are joined into that body of Christ. They are our brothers and sisters. One day we will join together in worship with those Thessalonian believers and we will fellowship together in heaven with those Thessalonian believers because we are united together with them in this glorious body of Christ, joined together in the universal body, in the universal called out group, the universal church, and we meet as the smaller local churches as we are here at Grace Bible Church. So then he describes his praying, verses two and three. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of our time this morning, I just want us to key in on these two verses where Paul is describing how he is thanking God for the Thessalonians. I want to see if we can learn something about our own praying as we look at these one of the great purposes accomplished by the book of 1st Thessalonians through its prayers is to teach us biblical patterns for prayer paul does that throughout his letters when he describes his prayers he doesn't do that simply so that we can say okay so that's how an apostle prayed this is the word of god and when we come across prayers in god's word We should meditate on those. We should look at those and think about them and think about our own prayer lives and see how we can pray like we see in Scripture. We have a tendency, I think, sometimes that we feel like if we see biblical prayers, we can't actually pray those prayers because that would be like plagiarism, right? God wants something original from me. No, this is God's Word, and this is God teaching us what praying looks like, what praying for fellow saints looks like. And, And so... As we look at a passage like this, we should be asking, does my prayer life look like this? Do my priorities in prayer look like this? Is this what it sounds like when I am praying? Because if this is what we're seeing in Scripture, then it's appropriate to help us. And and here it is, looking at how we might encourage others through praising God for them. I just want to give you just a sort of three-step sequence that I think we see here. And that is, watch, pray, and tell. Paul is watching them, seeing what God's doing in their lives. He is praising God for what he sees God doing in their lives, and then he's telling them. He doesn't stop just by observing, and he doesn't stop with praise, but he actually then circles back to them and says, this is what we are praising God for in your lives. We want you to be encouraged by how we are thanking God for his work in your life. D.A. Carson, in his excellent book, Praying with Paul, writes this, just as God's word must reform our theology, our ethics, and our practice, so also it must reform our praying. We should look to biblical prayers because we want to learn what to pray for, what arguments to use, what priorities we should adopt, what beliefs should shape our prayers, and much more. So we start with thanksgiving, as Paul does here how it is that we pray and thank God for others and how that should look. We're only gonna look at verses two and three. This whole passage connects together, verses one through 10. And so I'd just be clear, the things we'll look at next week in four through 10 are are foundational to to these um, words of thanksgiving because four through 10 shows us this is what God is doing in you. This is the evidence of of what our thanksgiving is about. But I just wanna key in on why he is thanking God always. Two things about the way Paul prays here, two lessons on this. First one is about frequency, the frequency or regularity of our praying. We should be persisting in giving thanks for brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be striving to pray regularly in thanksgiving for the work that he is doing in others. Paul says, we give thanks to God always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. I remind you again, this is Paul's letter, but this is the Word of God. So this is not hyperbole at this point. This is not exaggeration for effect. This is not Paul saying always, constantly, and you you know what I mean, something like that. This is Paul saying that he and Silas and Timothy together have this ongoing, unceasing, pressing Thought of the Thessalonians, as they do, no doubt, for the Philippians and other believers that they have ministered to, and as they are thinking of them, they are, they are constantly in a state of gratitude for what God is doing in their lives. They are frequently looking for, for things to give thanks for. We are at all times grateful to God for you, saying our hearts are constantly reflecting on God's goodness in you. And, and, and we, just, we just long to keep on giving thanks for what he's doing. The word constantly there in verse 2 is actually at the end of that phrase in the Greek. So the New American Standard probably is a little more accurate here. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. It is a constant state of gratitude. Gratitude. It is a a sense that we we just can't help but be thankful for the gracious work of God in your lives. We we had the privilege of being able to come and and preach, but it is God who has done the work. It is God who has grown that seed, and it is God who is causing it to prosper. There's, There's a sense here of being vigilant to watch others and to see God's work in their lives. Culturally, we we're in a culture that tends to watch people to find what's wrong in their lives. We look at other people to, to compare them and to see where maybe we're, we're better off than they are or we're somehow higher on, on a higher plane than they are or whatever it is. We're, we're looking at people in a fault-finding way. What is it that I can poke at? And Paul is, is describing here a vigilance to say, I, I believe God's at work in your lives and, and I want to see it. I want to watch for it. I want to watch you grow. I want to see God at work so that I can, I can acknowledge that and see his grace and praise him for it. Who was the last person that you paused to thank God for? Who was the last person that you stopped and said, Lord, thank you for fill in the blank? And for what? If, if we're struggling to remember who that person is, then, then we're missing What's modeled here. It it is Scripture calling us to be on the lookout for brothers and sisters in Christ because it really shouldn't take us that long to think about brothers and sisters in Christ whose growth, whose service, whose sacrifice, all of these different ways that we see God at work in them and pause and give thanks and say, Lord, thank you for your work of grace in that life. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul is not, you know, some monk who's cloistered away, and, and, and we can sort of dismiss this and go, well, yeah, he just, he just sits over in his place and, and spends all day with his prayer list and has nothing else to do, and so he can just do this all the time. I got a nine-to-five, I got kids, I got stuff going on, I can't do this. No, because the reality is Paul has already reminded us, and I mentioned it earlier in chapter 2, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day so as not to be a burden to you. So here's Paul proclaiming the gospel, working with his hands, trying to earn a living to pay the bills at the same time as the tent maker, and and throughout all of that, it's a a fixing of his mind on what is God doing now in the lives of these people? What can I give thanks for now? What can I see now in God's work in them? Evidences of of God's grace. You and I are being encouraged here toward a, a constancy in our thanksgiving being thankful for the believers in our lives, being thankful for the people that God has brought around us, parents for kids. This is a wonderful letter in terms of reminding us of of Paul's heartbeat as being almost like a parent to the Thessalonians. He'll use that language a little bit later on when he speaks of being like a mother and like a father to them. There is this passion to say, I see what God is doing in your, your life. That, that sort of commendation stuff that we struggle to do. We catch them when they're doing wrong, and we point that out. Do we also see when God is at work and there's things praiseworthy to commend them? In the same way, we're called to this constancy in our thanksgiving. If we need help on the content, that's what verse 3 then focuses on. Here is the content of what it is that that Paul sees in the Thessalonians and you and I can watch for. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The reference to our God and Father actually belongs at the end of verse 3, so it would be better translated this way. Unceasingly remembering your work of faith and labor of love and persistent hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. The only reason I point that out and just sort of flip that is it's not that Paul is saying, I am remembering these things before God. That's the essence of prayer, that he's remembering it before God. But what he seems to be saying to the Thessalonians is, I am unceasingly giving thanks for your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope that you are doing in the sight of God. He is seeing this, and you are carrying out this work before him. Richard Phillips puts it this way. Paul is reminding them that God sees and is glorified by their evidence of his saving grace. And that's what Paul identifies here, three, three evidences of grace, three demonstrations of God's grace in their lives. So these are things that you and I can look for and should look for in our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are things we should look for and be excited about and be thanking him for, thanking God for, and then going back and saying, hey, I am... I am so grateful for this work of God's grace in your life. These are just a few examples. The first one is your work of faith. Essentially, he says, Timothy has come back to tell us of your work of faith. We we are hearing of your trust in Christ, that it is so sure that you are so relying on him that it is showing itself in your serving work of faith is the idea that because of your faith you are you're serving and and ministering to others and there is this work amidst the persecution and the hardship that they face the genuineness of their faith is showing itself in their work and service so this is not a this is not a works based salvation at all this is not works that produce faith this is faith that produces works and he's saying, Your faith is is growing so wonderfully that it is, is pouring out in, in your service and your ministry to others. We know from down in verse 8 it says, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Here are people who for the gospel are suffering and facing persecution, and yet because of their hope in that gospel, their trust in that Savior, they are spreading that gospel. And so as people come through their city, there is such a vibrant, growing community of believers that that message is going out throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and people everywhere are hearing about the marvelous faith of the people in Thessalonica, the work that Jesus Christ has done and their belief in the gospel. That is a a glorious picture of the work of God to deepen their trust in him. When we see people unselfishly serving others in the name of Christ, we should thank God for their faith. I don't know about you, but put me in similar circumstances, put my trust in Jesus Christ, expecting a great new life in Christ, and immediately I am hit with persecution, and I'm losing things because of it. I am sorely tempted toward discouragement at that moment. This is, this is not what I bargained for. This is not what I planned. And yet the reality is their faith is simply deepened by it. They, they are trusting more firmly in this Savior who delivered them and who is coming for them. And consequently, this, they are working for the sake of that gospel. We should be thanking God for the faith of those that he is using in our lives, that we are seeing at work, uh, where he is nurturing his grace in them. They are serving with faith to believe that God will provide fruit for his service. Secondly, work of faith. Second is labor of love. John Stott points out faith is directed towards God, love is directed towards others, both within the Christian fellowship and beyond. It might not be quite that precise because there's certainly love toward God as well, but biblical love typically involves active sacrifice. When, when scripture calls us to love, it doesn't just want us to say, I love you, it wants us to act on that profession. And so 1 John 3:18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Thessalonians are already doing that. They are loving people. They are sacrificially giving of themselves to people. It says in chapter 4, verse 9, Paul wrote, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You've already already been taught brotherly love. You already understand that When we come to faith in Christ, we have been saved out of the love of God that he has delivered us now because of his love, and therefore that love should flow through us and we should love others. He says, you already, you got that. And and in fact, you are doing it to such a point that the love that you have is just spread throughout the believers in Macedonia. They experience sacrificial service from you because of your love for Christ. The, the difference between work of faith and labor of love, the word for labor has more of the idea of weariness. They are giving of themselves, not for self-gain, not for recognition, not for pats on the back, not as part of a deal to see what they can get back by, by giving in some way. They were motivated by love. That is not a. It, it doesn't come natural to us as human beings. It has to be the love of God in Christ flowing through us. In order for that to be extended out to others, it has to be fostered within us by the grace of God. And that's why he's thanking God for this. That's why he's praising God and saying, this this labor, this this way that you sacrifice for others out of love, praise God for that. He is at work in you, causing you to love others. Third one then, last one is, he is thankful for their persistent hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That word for steadfastness, steadfastness of hope, has the idea of enduring and patient, particularly amidst oppression. So it's, it's being blown, and it's being pushed, and yet it's standing firm. And so it is a hope that remains firm. The Thessalonians were from day one in the crucible of suffering at the hands of opponents. They come to faith, they experience persecution, and instead of letting that drive them to discouragement, They believed in hope in Christ. They they believed that what little bit Paul had grounded them with, that there's more to this, that your suffering here is just temporary, that there is an eternal glory that awaits. They put their hope in that. that They kept that forward-looking approach that didn't get them bogged down in, in the circumstances but kept them hoping in Christ. Paul had taught them to expect Jesus Christ to return, and so their suffering, coupled with God's grace, turned them into people who persisted in hoping in Christ. They persisted in believing this is not all there is. He is at work, and he will accomplish His will through us, and we trust him. And so they continued loving people and serving them with the gospel because they were clinging to that, that hope in Christ. Do you ever get discouraged? course you do. We all get discouraged at, at various times. For the believer in Jesus Christ, the thing that should ground us and hold us in the midst of suffering is hope. It is the belief that there is more than this, that there is an eternal home beyond this, that there is a Savior who is with us and who is coming for us. Because of the truth of the gospel, we have a confident expectation that all that lies ahead of us, be it good or bad by earthly terms, that all that lies ahead of us is ultimately leading us home to Christ and to the glorious expectation of eternity with him. And that's where the Thessalonians are. And that's what Paul's commending in them, that they have this forward-looking view that says, "We, we have hope In Christ, even when when people are despising us and rejecting us. When we see that hope pouring out of the lives of fellow believers, when we see a brother or sister who has just been given a horrible diagnosis or is going to have to go through all kinds of treatments or who has been abandoned by a spouse or who has had kids rebel and and leave home and and they are in the middle of that, that sorrowful point and are still able to give thanks and are still able to hope in Christ and still able to believe that their Savior loves them and holds them, those are the moments when we should be praising God for his grace and thanking God for what he's doing in that life. Just as Paul says, I am so thankful for your steadfast hope. Even in the midst of these afflictions, light and momentary afflictions, they do not compare to that eternal glory. So we should watch. It's one place we're allowed to be nosy as brothers and sisters in Christ is looking for what God is doing in others' lives. Watch vigilantly. Watch so that we can make note of those things and go to God in prayer and say, Lord, thank you for the the faith that that person exhibits in ministry. They, They trust you for things I struggle to trust you for, and they just keep going on trusting you. Thank you for the way that person loves even strangers. That person is just willing to, it's one of those, you know, give the shirt off your back kind of person. Their love is just, Lord, thank you for that. Praise you for that. And when we see people whose hope is so firm in Christ, even in the midst of life storms, we should give praise for that. Watch, give thanks, and tell. Go back as Paul does, and after you've watched and you've praised God, go to that person even if you have to email them, preferably go face-to-face if you can, and encourage them that way. Let them know that God is doing this work, and I see this work. It, it's not we're, not, we're not patting them on the back. We're praising God for what God is doing in their life, but we're, we're encouraging them by letting them know that I see the evidence of God's grace at work in your life. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be a thankful people. Help us to be a people who love to praise you, In the midst of our cries for help, our desires for your work in our lives, the the pleading for your Spirit's work, all of which we see clearly in Scripture, help us also to be a people with hearts of thanksgiving. Help us, even as we fellowship together here in this next hour or so, help us to be vigilantly encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ thankful for what God is doing in and through them. Help us as as parents, the parents here, help them to be encouraging to their children to see God's work in their lives, encouraging them when they stand firm, encouraging them to press on. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray, Lord, that today you would You would bring them to that place of seeing the the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that hope is ultimately found in Christ, in a Savior who gave his life as a ransom for sinners, who died on the cross and rose again, and is coming again for his people. Lord, thank you for your good work in our lives. Thank you for the, the grace we experience that helps us to serve, that helps us to labor, that gives us hope even amidst circumstances that would argue otherwise. Cause us to be a grateful, thankful people. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.